Okay, some housekeeping. Draw for our junior high students. Uh, students who fill out our sermon notes every week and put their name on it and hand it in to me get their name put in a draw, and at the end of the month, I do a draw for one or two cards, $20 gift certificate to Chapters Indigo. And I have had some students say, oh, like, that's super awesome. And then what happens is some of them sometimes are asked to serve upstairs in Sunday school, and they don't want to serve because they don't want to miss out on the chance to get, like, a little winning ticket. So just a heads up, parents, if they ask you, you can also get your name put in if you serve and help with nursery or Sunday school. That's totally legit. We're not going to penalize our junior high students or any students for serving and helping in that way. So just make sure that they let me know or you let me know as a parent or the Sunday school uh, people let me know that uh, you know, person X helped me today. So our draw from uh, October and November, I, can't, I, I don't really keep track. I don't know if I did anything in October. Whatever. So October and November was um, Adea and Julia. Good job, Adea. Where's Julia? Oh, she's upstairs. Sorry. Great. And then at the start of the month, as you can see here, I always like to share how I am trying to stretch myself to grow heart, soul, mind, and strength, relationships, interiority, prayer, worship, life, growing in biblical knowledge, and serving. And so a quick rundown. Rick and I, uh, I, I think we've stumbled upon something that's been really encouraging for me. We've kind of said for the first year or two that we work together and uh, form a ministry team together that we're going to just trade books of, uh, that have been formative for us in ministry or in life. And we'll read one book together and then talk about it for a month and then do the other person's book and go back and forth. And he got the chance to pick the first book and he picked a book called Resilient Ministry, which I have found both really encouraging and challenging and uh, really catalytic in terms of helping me to get to know Rick better and appreciate his heart and the way he sees things and it's just given us lots to talk about. I think what I'll also do is I'll invite people, I'll let people know what we're reading each month because some, there might be some people who might want to read books that have been formative for their pastor. That, that might be helpful for you to know. Again, that's just something that we'll make available to you. Uh, reflection in my stage of life, it's very difficult to get quality reflection time, but one of the things coming out of Resilient Ministry was the need to have significant, intentional soul space where you're journaling and reflecting on the experiences that God is um, putting in your life. And so that's something I want to try and give more attention to. And I'm experimenting with some suggestions out of that book for this month. Mine, I'm doing my Grant Horner Bible reading plan, which is kind of like ch 10 chapters a day. I often don't get to all 10 chapters, but it really, I just want to do a reading plan that immerses me in Scripture, and this kind of puts you in all the different uh, places of Scripture and has you cycling through Psalms and Proverbs and the Gospels and the pastoral epistles and kind of a little bit of everything every day, and so I really, really like it, although it's challenging. And then one thing that we have started to kind of talk about as a family, and I'm going to try and really focus on this for December is to use the BLESS acronym from the Evangelical Covenant Church, begin with prayer, listen with care, eat together, serve with love, share your story, and make each of those a theme for Monday through Friday as a family, to kind of at the breakfast table to say, hey, today we're beginning in prayer, and let's you know, pray for a week, let's pray for people, then the next day like, our theme is listen with care, and we just have a little lesson about what it means to listen, and, how to, and we talk about it at night, how did it go? And so each of those can kind of become a theme for us, because I really love these patterns and practices, and so just helping 
to make one a theme for the day, uh, I think would be really fruitful. So that's kind of what um, I'm focusing on in terms of my own growth as a disciple of Jesus. Okay, I am going to read two scriptures back to back. The first is Exodus 12, verses 1 to 11. The second will be back into Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 25. So Exodus, second book of the Bible. Mark, second book of the New Testament. So I'll read Exodus 12, 1 to 11. This is the Passover text. This is when God gives instructions to Moses and Aaron in Egypt related to the Passover. And then Mark 14, picking up what we talked about last week, is Jesus' kind of revision of this Passover meal. So Exodus 12, 1 to 11. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for the whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. And the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take from them, sorry, you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left until morning, you must burn it. And this is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Mark 22. While they were eating the Passover, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink it again, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So last week we discovered for the first time, maybe rediscovered, that as the Passion Week unfolds, as we get closer and closer to the crucifixion, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples, this Jewish feast. The Passover is the major Jewish feast because it commemorates the major event of the Exodus, which is the worldview-shaping event that revealed to Israel who God is, who, were, who they were, how they were supposed to live. But when Jesus moves them through the Passover, he kind of adds a major plot twist. And that is he makes the whole meal actually about himself. He takes the unleavened bread and he takes the wine, symbols connected to Passover, and he says, this is actually about my body. This is about my blood. And so he's actually saying this story that you've heard recounted every year that's been so formative for you actually points to me. You will not understand the story unless you understand who I am and what I'm about to do, what's about to happen at the cross and ultimately in the resurrection. 
Jesus is making it very clear that there was a first exodus where God's people were delivered out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness and into a new life with God. And now he's not so subtly setting up a second exodus, a new exodus. And he's implicitly stating Whoever follows me is part of a new exodus, and that's going to have ramifications for your entire life. Now, someone might hear that language and say, new exodus, okay, that um, sounds fairly convoluted. I maybe have a sense of what that might mean, but I'm not understand, I don't understand how that connects to my everyday life. Um, that sounds like a really fanciful way of just kind of saying we have freedom in Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins in Jesus. And there's actually a lot more going on there. There's, there's a lot more embedded meaning, meaning in this idea of a new exodus. But it, it probably won't occur to us unless we come at it from a different angle. So this, this is the question that I would invite you to think about for a moment. There were lots of Jewish feasts. There's seven of them. Why did Jesus choose to institute the new covenant feast during the Passover? Now, if you're like me, you've probably never even been invited to think about that question. It's just that's when he did it. But he didn't have to. He could have instituted the New Covenant feast on any of the other Jewish feast holidays. One commentator said, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they present Jesus as taking great pains to make sure that he makes his stand in his ultimate declaration of who he is at the Passover feast. And this is significant because Jesus could have made his stand in Jerusalem during the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And if you think about it, that maybe might have made more sense from how we tend to think about the importance of Jesus' life and death, right? If, If the gospel of Christianity, if the hope of Christianity is essentially Jesus died so that I could have my sins forgiven then wouldn't it make more sense for Jesus to have instituted his meal during the day of the Passover? Or sorry, during the day of atonement. Because the day of atonement was the day where the entire focus of everything was the forgiveness and the remission and the cleansing and the covering over of sin. Two things happen on the day of atonement. First of all, the high priest goes into the most holy place, brings a blood offering, sprinkles the blood on the inside of the tabernacle to cleanse it, It's a foreshadowing of how the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from impurities and sin, cleanse us from the shame that Jan talked about earlier. And then what would happen is the second thing is there would be uh, two goats. One goat's blood was used for that ceremonial cleansing in the temple. A second goat would be, uh, they would cast lots, and then one goat would uh, would be instituted as the scapegoat. That's where we get our word from, and what would happen is the high priest would ceremonially, ceremonially lay his hands on the scapegoat and symbolically place the sins of Israel on the goat and then drive the goat out into the wilderness. Take it out of the city, drive it out into the wilderness. And the idea there is that very clearly is foreshadowing that God will place the sins of his people on a scapegoat And as far as the east is from the west, he's going to remove our sin from us. 
So when you think about those themes of blood and atonement and cleansing and the scapegoat and removing sin, if the gospel is just about the forgiveness of sins, why wouldn't Jesus institute the meal on the Day of Atonement? That would seem to make sense. But he doesn't. He institutes it on the Passover, and that's significant because we're supposed to understand and hear from that that the point of Christianity is not just the forgiveness of sins. That's a huge dimension of the gospel. It's a massive dimension of the good news. But the Passover celebration commemorates the Exodus. What happened in the Exodus? Just shout it out. What happened? Freedom from slavery. Freedom from slavery. God's people enslaved 400 years. God hears their cry, rescues them through many signs and wonders and miracles, and leads them out of Egypt. Egypt, for the rest of the Old Testament, and for those who have eyes to see it in the New Testament, Egypt then symbolizes what? What does Egypt and Pharaoh become a symbol for? Bondage, tyranny, spiritual oppression. Egypt is a stand-in for the power of sin that holds us down from what God wants for us, that pulls us back from the life that we're meant to live, that keeps us trapped, keeps us in cycles of suffering, that has mastered us and that we need deliverance from. And so Egypt is about patterns and practices and power, the power of sin and death. Sometimes the Bible talks about sin as if it's a, it's a particular act. I steal something that was a sinful act. That is true. But the Bible also talks about sin as a power. So sometimes, sometimes we talk about the state of sin. That's the idea behind the, the sense that we are born sinful. It's not that we're born doing bad things. We're born under the power of sin. So sin is both an act, but it's also a power. And Egypt becomes a symbol for that. Egypt is slavery, cycles of suffering, cycles of stuckness, crying out because there's something dominating you that you can't get out of. So in short, Egypt is the enslaving power of sin. And so the fact that Jesus says, what I'm about to do is a new exodus, it's a new Passover, does Jesus want us to hear that through what's going to happen, you can have forgiveness of sins and full cleansing from shame and guilt before God and before other people? Absolutely. But it's through the lens of Passover, not the Day of Atonement. Passover, as one commentator said, is the regulating story through which we're to understand Jesus' life, death, and ultimately his resurrection. This is a story of rescue. This is a story of not just you can be forgiven, but you can be forgiven and then transplanted into a new type of life, yes. a new kind of freedom, yeah. a, um, new opportunities. And that is very different than a gospel of mere forgiveness, as good as forgiveness is and as necessary as forgiveness is. Now think about something for a second. Go back into Exodus 12, verse 11. The Passover, as the subtext for this new covenant meal. I think there's something really, really important here. How are we supposed to follow Jesus out of Egypt 
How are we supposed to follow Jesus out of Egypt? I think the answer is in Exodus 12.1. This is how you are to eat the Passover meal, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. You are to... Jews celebrated the Passover, and you, and you ate as if you were going somewhere, as if you were leaving in a hurry. So you eat the meal in a hurry. This isn't like a, hey, let's, you know, we're, we're making our home here in Egypt. We're about to be delivered by God out of Egypt, so we eat this meal, but we do it in haste because we're preparing to leave. And I think that's really important for, under, for us to understand as we prepare to come to the meal that Jesus gave us, to understand that that is a theme of what he's assuming too that we're eating this meal understanding that we're to leave Egypt in haste. You know what I mean by Egypt, right? We're talking about that. We're the, we mentioned the enslaving forces in your life. Jesus says, the life I have for you, I'm going to lead you out of those things. So let's leave in a hurry. Don't, don't stay in that place. You don't need to stay in that place any longer. Leave in haste. But as I thought about that this week, I thought of at least three alternatives to not leaving Egypt in haste. And in different uh, dimensions and parts of my life, I'm guilty of all of these. And, uh, and I know pastorally, these are alternatives that are often chosen by Christians. There are practices and patterns that defined your life before you became a Christian that you are saved from but there are three alternatives to leaving those behind in haste, in a hurry. And the first is, you do leave them, but then after a time, you go back. I'm out of Egypt. God has saved me. I'm in the wilderness on the road to a new promised land. But like the Israelites, I start saying, ah, it was better in Egypt. Can we go back? Why do Christians do this? Why do, some, why do you think, and you just, just say it out loud, why do you think some Christians choose this option? They, they're rescued from Egypt, but then they ultimately go back. Why do you think that's the case? What well, might be some reasons? Easier. So that's a big one. I heard that from a few different people. It is easier. And, and there, it's what you know, right? Better the devil you, you know than the devil you don't, right? And then when you start getting out into the wilderness... It's uncomfortable. It's challenging. You have to reorient every part of who you are. And you start to have second doubt. You start to have doubts. Like the children of Israel out in the desert, they start wondering, well, maybe Moses brought us out here to die. Maybe this isn't a rescue at all. I want to go back. This is hard. God is beginning to form them. He's saying, you think of yourself as a slave, I'm going to move you over to here, but there's this place of transition where there's going to have to be some work done on your heart and on your patterns. And when you start, and when God begins to work on you, you can say, oh yeah, I didn't sign up for this. I wanted like the rescue, like, the fr- like you're rescuing me into beachfront property overlooking stuff and just relax. I'm not, like, yeah, hmm, I didn't understand this is kind of what I signed up for. And you can actually begin to look back at your life in Egypt, your enslavement, and say, that was actually easier. And a lot of Christians do that. There are a lot of, and maybe not with their whole life, but in certain areas of their life. God invites them to freedom in this area, 
And then they say, you know what? I think I preferred it in Egypt. But then they wonder why. Again, they're, they're Christians, but they're not walking in freedom and uh, free conscience and walking in obedience and power. And it's because essentially they've, um, I, you know, I do think they're saved, but they're, it's like a slave who've gone back into Egypt and put the shackles back on and say, yeah, this feels like home to me. And that is a temptation. That's one alternative to leaving Egypt in haste. The second is you can leave partially. You can say, for sure, like, I want Jesus to save me. I want this new life that God has for me. Awesome. I want forgiveness and empowerment to new life. And I, I want to see the promised land. Um, and for, like, absolutely in these areas, I want that. Yes. So I want Jesus to be Lord and my deliverer and savior in these areas of my life. But, like, over here, I. I'm pretty comfortable, actually, with the way things are. Um, and I kind of, in my mind's eye, I think I can negotiate kind of having a foot in both worlds. And uh, certainly thankful to God for what he's provided in Christ. But I just feels a little extreme to, to, to leave all this stuff behind. Why might a Christian be tempted to only leave Egypt partially? Yeah, just pure selfishness. You might realize the call of Christ into the promised land is going to demand a lot of you, and you kind of want to steal back some of that for yourself. Well, I'll give God this much, but not this much. Like, he's rescued me, and I'm appreciative, so I'll give him a portion of my life. But this I want to keep for myself. What might be another reason why someone might, even unconsciously, live out their faith that way. Yeah, love for the world. And, the, and, and the, by the world, we don't mean creation. The world is a very specific word that the Bible uses to talk about the patterns of culture outside of Jesus. Ways of living that don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord and aren't trying to figure out how do I honor God in this area. And there just might be areas that in some ways are kind of working for us, right? I mean, it took me a long time to come to a place as a Christian to say the material wealth that I have belongs to God and I'm going to even just start living both generously and tithing because that was something where it was like yeah I want Jesus to do awesome stuff in my life and I want God to love you know I, I know God loves me and that's super awesome but I want to basically keep as much as I can to myself because I do fundamentally believe that having more money and having more stuff is, is pretty integral to a good life and so even in the big picture, even something as small as giving over 10% of my income just felt catastrophic to me. I was like, oh, I can't do that. So I'm trying to figure out a way, and maybe I'll give God, like I'll give God some, I'll throw God a bone over here, like I'll do some extra stuff over here, God, but as long as you don't confront me, or as long as I can keep living over here. So you can leave Egypt partially. And the last thing you can do is you can just leave Egypt, but you can do it really really slowly, really slowly. You can do it at a comfortable pace. I want to walk in freedom. I want to take hold of the life that God has for me. Absolutely, and I will. But I'm just going to kind of let the days and months and years play out, and I'm sure God will do his thing, and it'll happen in, in the right timing. I don't have to bring intentionality to it. I don't have to leave with haste. It's more like a stroll, 
Like, I'm leaving Egypt. Just settle down. I'm going. I'm not like sprinting, but it's fine, right? There's this habit in my life. There's a practice. There's a way of using my words. There's a posture of my heart. There's a certain behavior pattern. And yeah, it's not great, but no one's perfect. And uh, yeah, I'm totally willing to like dole it out and just kind of, I'll move away from it, but at a pace that's comfortable for me. Why might a Christian choose this option? To leave Egypt, but just to do it slowly. You're still in control. Absolutely. God says, clean break. You're no longer a slave. You don't belong to Pharaoh. You belong to me. And we say, yes, I'm so glad I don't belong to Pharaoh. But our heart also says, but I don't want to fully belong to God either. Right? I mean, there's something controversial when Paul says in the New Testament, you are now slaves of Christ. Because to a Jewish person, that's provocative. Because you're like, well, we got rescued from slavery so are you telling us we got rescued from slavery into slavery? Yes. You aren't rescued from slavery to then live however you want to live. Freedom in Christ isn't the freedom to live the life that you deem that you want. It's freedom to live for God and to live into his purposes. Paul uses that stark language of slavery to say, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Right? Therefore, honor God with your body. Honor God with your entire life. But some Christians choose to leave Egypt slowly because they want to stay in control of their spiritual development. They're willing to give obedience, but partially and in a way that kind of fits the rest of the lifestyle that they've set up for themselves. Can you think of another reason why someone might leave Egypt but do it slowly? People don't like change. Yeah, for sure. So... God always leads us from Egypt to the promised land at a reasonable pace, but for some of us, it's just, it's just scary. It's scary to think, if I actually give this up, if I say no to this, if I really confront this, if I sign up for Freedom Session in order to confront this area of stuckness, yes, I want it to be gone, but do I... Is God going to strengthen me to face what I need to face here, to really surrender? That, that, that's a those can be really overwhelming thoughts and we can double down into thinking, no, I know what's best for me. I know the pace at which obedience should play out for me. So you can leave Egypt and go back. You can leave Egypt partially and try to kind of play both sides or you can leave Egypt but just do it slowly. And those are three alternatives that if we're honest with ourselves, hopefully not in the totality of our lives, but in certain areas, um, Money, sex, power would be the three overarching ones, and then you can get into sub-branches and underneath those things. But we're, you know, that, that might be a good exercise for us all to do, to say, God, where am I doing these things in certain areas of my life? Where am I not following you out of Egypt with haste? And if you're considering that this morning, if you're considering going back to Egypt, going back to those patterns and practices that are destructive, that you know are, de- are destructive, but they're familiar, and, and so in some sense they're comfortable for you, if you're tempted to only leave Egypt partially, if you're tempted to leave Egypt but just do it slowly, I think one of the major lessons that comes out of the story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt into the wilderness, into the promised land, is this, and that is do not cultivate a nostalgia for catastrophe. 
Do not cultivate a nostalgia for catastrophe. Egypt, Egypt was hell on earth for the Israelites. But the farther they get away from it, the more they, well, you know, it's rose-colored glasses. We had lots to eat, man. Remember those meat pots? Remember all the, we just had food and we had all this fruit. It was amazing. And I mean, slaves, yeah, but not really mistreated. It wasn't that bad. You know, now that I think about it, it seems easier than here. And if you think about that pattern, doesn't that happen so often? We start to move into freedom and the enemy starts whispering, like, oh, it was better. This is hard work. Go back. This is, this wasn't catastrophic. This wasn't, this wasn't a dead end. It certainly is easier than this. You trust in this God guy to lead you? He's brought you out here to die. Come back, come back, come back. You're going to hear that in all kinds of ways throughout your life as you follow Jesus into freedom. But do not cultivate nostalgia for catastrophe. That's why the biblical call, certainly in Deuteronomy with the new generation about to go into the promised land over and over again is, remember the Lord, remember your story. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. You were slaves in Egypt. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. This was not a good chapter in your life. I rescued you and your ancestors. Don't think going back there is the way forward. It is never the way forward. Egypt, our patterns of sin and practices of sin are not a good place to be. Egypt can't be managed or mastered. It masters you. You can't handle sin. It crouches at your door and it will consume you. You're not more powerful than it is. You can't outsmart it. And if you think you don't need to leave it behind because um, you, you, you can kind of negotiate with it as you move into your new life, you are like a newly freed slave who wants to stay shackled for posterity's sake. But a free man doesn't act like a slave. And their fundamental identity is no longer a slave to the tyranny of sin. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And that yoke of slavery are sinful patterns and practices. And I don't just mean what some of us might consider the, the hot sins, the, the really bad ones that in our minds come to the top of the list, whatever those might be but it's any pattern or practice that distorts God's intention and leads to slavery and bondage. Any pattern or practice that draws us away from God and the life God has for us and moves us into cycles of stuckness and, um, and, and ultimately misery. Maybe not initially, but it, it moves us there. So my question to us this morning is as we come to the Lord's table, do we recognize that part of what we're doing is saying, thank you, Jesus, for saving me from a power that I couldn't save myself from? And in eating this bread that is your body and this juice, wine, it's a symbol for your blood, like because of your death and your atonement, I am declaring that I'm going to follow you and I'm going to follow you in haste. I'm going to pursue you like seriously and intentionally. I'm leaving my old life behind. I'm not trying to figure out how I can be conditionally, partially, selectively obedient. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm saying my desire is to follow you out of my own Egypt with haste. 
I don't want to live this life anymore. I want what you have for me. Are you leaving your old life behind? Are you leaving patterns and practices of sin behind? Pornography, resentment, maybe part of your Egypt is a self-deprecating, self-condemning identity. You're nothing but a slave. You can, you can never find hope. There's, there's no, just kind of give up. You know who you are and what you are. Maybe it's a gluttonous or a consumptive pattern around food or drink or experiences or making money. Gluttony has all kinds of expression. Maybe it's a, just a very self-centered quest for personal happiness that seems good and right to you, but it's essentially having you move through, sleepwalking through life in a haze of um, self-absorption. You're not pouring yourself out for other people or for the purposes of God. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's any kind of destructive script. Maybe it's a script in your marriage that you're not leaving behind or a script as a family or as a father or, or you know, what have you or in friendship. But whatever your Egypt is, Jesus didn't die simply so that you could be forgiven of the penalty of that sin. But he died so that you could walk in newness of life, no longer under its power. And you could learn, and it's a learning process. You learn, right? It's not like Israel just, the moment they step out of Egypt, they're like, we're the Israelites. We understand what that means. We don't have to go through the wilderness. We don't have to face battles. No, you do. But all along the way, God is removing the, what the Bible calls the reproach of Egypt from you and leading you into his new identity. You are a new creation. You're learning to walk upright. You're learning to who God is, who you are, and how you're supposed to live in the world. So it's not about claiming perfection, but it is about claiming progress, following Jesus out of Egypt in haste. I don't want that life anymore. Paul talks about this in Romans 6. He says, what are we supposed to say about this, about the way that God rescues us? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If the gospel is just about forgiveness of sin, then wouldn't it make sense that we should just sin a lot? Because the more we sin and the more God forgives the more glory God gets. Let's just keep sinning. And Paul says, no, you've actually, you've misunderstood the gospel. Forgiveness is a huge part of the gospel, but you haven't thought through the lens of Passover. You're thinking through the lens just of the gospel as a day of atonement meal. But no, the meal that Jesus gave us is a Passover meal. By no means, we died to sin. You're not a slave anymore. That chapter of your life has been brought to closure in Christ. How can you live in it anymore? Why would you want to go back? Why are you trying to keep one foot in one area? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so as we come forward and take bread and juice this morning, May that dimension of the Lord's Supper just kind of press on our hearts and give us hope that if we are in this place of stuckness, of slavery, of bondage, God not only can lead us out, but wants to and has given us the power to. You are no longer a slave. You now belong. You've been adopted. You are sons and daughters of the living God but we have a part to play, and that part is to leave Egypt in haste 
to say, I don't want this anymore. And we come to this table to recognize and to celebrate that the only reason we're able to leave Egypt is because of what Jesus did. We are not saving ourselves. He has saved us, and now he is leading us in freedom. Let's pray. God, as we prepare our hearts for this time of communion, it, it just seems the older I get, I just, and the more I learn, and the more I learn through the study of your word and through prayer and through just reflection, God, there are just always new dimensions and elements of the gospel and of this meal that you've given us that challenge us, to give us hope. And I really pray this morning as we come forward that especially for those of us who in different areas of our lives are kind of, you know, kind of playing footsies with Egypt and saying, ah, oh, it's not that bad. It's minimizing it, minimizing sin in our life. That we, we would realize we're doing nothing but harming ourselves and bringing dishonor to you. This is, this is a dead end. This is a dead end path. You have shown us the paths to life. Help us to leave Egypt in haste, God. As we come forward, may that be a kind of embodied prayer where we're saying, Jesus, I want to walk away from this unforgiveness. I want to walk away from this bondage. I want to walk away from this way of speaking, this way of living. But I need your help. So we come knowing forgiveness and knowing hope God, thank you that you gave us this meal as a Passover meal. And may we learn to walk in newness of life with you. Amen.